to play now Put me in the game now I came here to prove it, I'm ready to do it I can't be afraid now Put me on the stage now I'm ready to rage now I feel like an animal stuck in a cage And I'm ready to break out Hey guys, it's Jay here and welcome to the Mindset of Muscle podcast. I am back with another killer episode which I'm incredibly excited to show you. Last week I connected on Instagram with a guy I've been following for years, Kyle Creek, aka The Captain. Kyle is a brilliant writer and has some of the most viral quotes on the internet. We go pretty damn deep in this episode talking about the ups and downs of life, dealing with dark times and how to keep creative and focused during these crazy times. So sit back, relax, and get ready to be blown away with my interview with the captain, Kyle Creek. Kyle Creek, welcome to the Mindset Muscle podcast. Thanks for having me, Jay. You're more than welcome. I am going to kickstart this podcast with a quote. You might recognize this quote, Kyle. <laughs> Do sharks complain about Monday? Nope. They're up early, biting stuff, chasing shit, being scary, reminding everyone they're a fucking shark. Now, that was you, wasn't it? That was me. And I actually, uh, I remember exactly when I wrote that quote. It was probably 2000, I think it's 15, I believe. And September the 28th, 2015 was the official Twitter documentation of it. I remember that I was living in Salt Lake City at the time working for an advertising company and I was having a hard time motivating myself to go into work that morning and I was actually sitting in my bathroom taking way too much time on my phone and it just kind of hit me. Um, I've always been a big fan of nature, a big fan of National Geographic kind of stuff and that thought just hit me, you know, if I was in the animal kingdom, I wouldn't be worried that it was Monday. I wouldn't be complaining about it. I would just be getting up and doing whatever the fuck I had to do that day to survive. And so that's when the the thought hit me and that's when I pieced it together. And it has become probably one of my prolific, you know, most prolific quotes. I see it shared every Monday. I get it sent to me by a dozen different accounts that didn't create it. I want to claim credit for it, but that's just kind of what you do as a writer these days. You put your work out into the world, knowing that it's going to be tweaked. It's going to be, you know, changed. And it's something I've come to terms with and I'm just kind of stoked that quotes held up as long as it has, honestly. It's, it's crazy how things stick uh, with the internet sometimes. I mean, if you had a dollar for every time someone stole that, you'd probably have about $1,800 by now. <laughs> <laughs> something I, like I've, that. <laughs> I've got a very strange one. Back in 2013, I had I shared a transformation picture before and after. It was a crazy transformation that I did in six months. And I even explained this because... Um, it's still going viral today. And I said, look, imagine taking the worst possible picture in the brightest light in the worst shape of your life. And then imagine taking it six months later when you're 45 pounds lighter, you're with a professional photographer, oiled up, tanned up with the perfect lighting and Photoshop suite. That's why it looks so good. Um, But it's been shared you know, the amount of money people have made that made on that picture is unreal. I get sent it a bit like your one once or twice a week. People marketing steroids, dick pills, um, businesses, everything. And it just makes me chuckle because it's just mad at how something that I produced 
seven, eight, nine years ago is still being shared on, on the internet today. <laughs> so you're that guy on those headlines where it says, personal trainers hate him, learn his secrets today kind of thing. And they use your photo to promote whatever bullshit they're selling. Yep. More than likely you've seen it somewhere. <laughs> and it's one of those things where you, you'll see it now and you, you go, ah. <laughs> but I think as What's... well, what you... sorry, Carl. Um, I think one of the things I wanted to say is that a lot of people get annoyed when people steal their shit. And I always say to somebody, do you know what's worse than someone stealing your shit? And it's not stealing it. No one paying attention. Um, I'm 50-50 on that. It depends how they're stealing it. Um, My issue with it is when someone reposts something without credit on it, totally fine with that. I understand what's going to happen. When someone who is also a creator or someone who also, you know, uh, promotes himself as a writer, posts it and then puts their handle on it in place of mine and tries to take credit for writing it, that's when I have an issue with it. And I mean, that's straight up plagiarism. And I've called that stuff out plenty of times on my platform. I've beefed with some world class comedians who have done that. And it really comes down to the intent. If someone's just trying to share it to motivate their friends or have fun with it, awesome. Like, I'm totally cool with that. Use my work all you want. Just don't act like you wrote it. That's where I kind of draw the line. And so I can see why you would be frustrated if people making money off your image, specifically when they're promoting it as, you know, a lie. Um, but yeah, like you said, the worst thing is being ignored, especially if you consider yourself someone creative in any endeavor. Yeah, Precisely. And I, I think I, I actually, and it must have been about three or four years, ta- tagged your name in, and I won't say the company, a company was using it to promote their software. And I tagged you in it. And they then they credited you. I remember that it was about three or four years ago. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> a cool story about that, though, is I had, I had someone send me they were working at Uber at the time. And there was an executive at Uber giving a presentation. And she led her presentation with my quote across the PowerPoint slide. Didn't have any credit on it. And she was speaking to the whole Uber team. And someone sent it to me and said, hey, did you give so-and-so credit to this? And I said, no, I've never even heard of that person. So I reached out to her. And I said, hey, I saw you give a presentation at your headquarters today. By the way, I'm the guy that wrote that. And she wrote me back. And she was like, oh, shit, I had no idea. Like, I really just loved it. And she was apologetic about it. And I wasn't trying to attack her in any way. I was just trying to let her know. And we're actually really good friends now. And I've been friends for probably five or six years now. We've done projects together, um, been very supportive of each other's like professional career. And she's just continued to climb the ladder. I mean, she was a massive part of, you know, some big new Netflix uh, programming. And that's one of the things I enjoy about the internet too, is just so it connected you and I. Um, it's weird to me how certain quotes of mine have connected me to individuals that I otherwise never would have crossed paths with, um, not only in my personal life, but in my professional career. And it comes down to what you're just saying. I mean, being ignored, if you're creating something that no one pays attention to, that would never happen. So obviously, I'd much rather have someone steal my work and share it everywhere if it means I get to connect with these people and have these relationships that otherwise would not be possible. A hundred percent. Something else I saw, Carl, is um, your 35 at 35 post. And the reason it resonates with me is that ever since the age of 30, I've been doing a, th- I did a 30 at 30 
31 at 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, and I'm 37. Um, I was 37 in May. And I got to my 37th and I was like, how much longer are you going to do this? And I've changed the, <laughs> I've changed the format this year. It is now seven things at 37, eight <laughs> things at 38, nine things at 39, and then I'm going to do one massive one uh, at 40. But I wanted to uh, read back some of the ones that you put here at uh, 35 and just delve a little bit deeper into them, if you don't mind, Carl. Absolutely. The, the first one is resistance to change is an invitation to pain. That's a very personal one because when I wrote that, I was actually going through another period of change in my life. I'd come out of this depressive episode. I'd taken a break on social media and my relationship with my girlfriend was on the rocks and it was right in the middle of, uh, it would have been a year after kind of COVID shut everything down. So I was struggling with my career and the direction it was going because when COVID shut down, it kind of wiped out a lot of my income. And I was just resisting taking a leap back on myself. Um, some people might not know, but I had a pretty, you know, big advertising career in New York City for many years. And I left that behind to take a leap on myself. And I went to L.A. to try and get in TV writing. It didn't really work out the way I planned. And I was just going through this depressive slump and I kept trying to find jobs. I kept trying to find contracts. I kept trying to find stuff outside of myself. And I realized the longer I kept trying to find other people to validate my creativity or validate my work, I was just making myself feel worse. Um, deep down, what I really wanted to do is write books. What I really wanted to do was focus on my own craft and doing things that I was excited to create. Like we talked about before this podcast you know, you get to a point in your life where people start paying you for your creativity, it kind of loses the fun aspect of it. And so when I wrote that, I'm pretty sure what I was thinking of was, you know, I was resisting this change in my life, I was resisting this point in my life where I needed to go 100% on myself. And the longer it took me to do that, the more pain I was just causing myself and making myself feel inadequate. I think a lot of people have this kind of sunk cost fallacy where they feel invested mm -hmm. in something. So they're just resistant to it because they're just too worried that I've put too much effort or time into this relationship, into this job, into this career path, whatever it is. And they're quite happy then to become miserable for longer periods of time than it would actually take to make those changes. I think the sunk cost fallacy is probably the most detrimental thing everyone has in their life. And like you just said, you know, with relationships, jobs, a whole, you know, multitude of things. Trying to justify the time you put into something um, prevents you from, I'm trying to think of the right way to word this. It, it prevents you from actually accomplishing what you really want in life most of the time because it forces you to cling on to a fantasy that's not really there anymore. And there's something to be said for grit and people who grind it out. You know, like we talked about, it can take 10 years for you to actually make a name for yourself. But when it comes to the point of something is so painful or energetically wrong for you and you're trying to, a relationship, for example, you have this idea of what the relationship could be you're living a lie. 
And that lie is going to prevent you from living a life that you actually want. And people, whether it's work or like you said, a relationship, it's something I struggled with in my life until later on when I learned to let go of things and move on. Until you get comfortable with doing that a couple of times, you're just going to continually hold yourself back. A hundred percent. The, the next one, Carl, was admitting you're wrong is sometimes the only way to be right. <laughs> That's very true, too, especially given the last two years of what's gone on and the kind of divisiveness and attacks people have had on each other. <clears throat> Again, it's something that I didn't realize until later in my life. But when you become okay with being wrong, life is so much easier. And I saw a quote recently, I can't remember who wrote it, but it said, our desire to be right actually comes from our fear of being wrong. And more so than wanting to be right, essentially, we just don't like being wrong. We hate it. We hate the feeling. Ever since we were kids, um, you know, you get the wrong question on a test or you answer the question wrong in class. It makes you feel stupid and people don't want to feel stupid. Nobody does. But when you become okay with that and realize that's a point of life, my life has gotten infinitely easier. My relationship, my work, when I'm just willing to be like, you know what? I fucked up. That's just what it is. Now, I'm either going to ask the right question to help me figure it out or I'm just going to chalk it up as a loss and move forward. Yeah, I've, I've noticed this a lot as I've matured on the internet, shall we say. You know, at the beginning of my social media career, shall we say, 10 years ago, up until maybe five years ago, I used to love arguing with people on the internet because I used to get a lot of <laughs> I, I used to get a lot of likes on my witty comebacks to <clears throat> to trolls, and that would be my thing on a Friday night, few beers, let let's let's go, and it was a lot of fun. These days, you know, for me, it's just letting people win. You know, say what you have to say, and one of the biggest problems that I see with people who argue on the internet is that they're forgetting that both of you have two things. The internet, i.e. Google, and time. So you've got time to respond, and you've got Google to come up with a witty response. So nobody is ever going to win, and I've yet to see anyone on the internet on a conversation go, do you know what? You're right, I'm wrong. And here's the thing. If somebody actually just did that, even if they don't believe that they're right, the amount of time that they'll get back doing you know, getting back so they could actually spend that time on things more productive, like spending time with their family and friends and people they actually give a fuck about would be astronomical. And that's why I resonated so much with that because, you know, the, the only way to be right is spending the right amount of time with people who actually matter rather than, you know, arguing with strangers on the internet. We have a lot in common in that regard. I used to love arguing with people. I kind of, uh, my whole online presence was kind of predicated on my ability to, to talk shit. And I got to the same point where I realized it was just really detrimental to my time and the energy going into it just wasn't right. And when you talk about being right, there's the whole other side of the argument, which is what's right for you might not be right for the people. And so when you're trying to argue to make yourself right, you might understand you know, you have to understand that other person might never see it that way because that's not right to them. And so it's just a complete waste of time. And like you said, I don't know that I've ever seen someone on an argument just admit, you know, someone else is right and they are wrong either because it's our ego just wanting us. Uh, like you said, we want those likes. Um, I heard someone else say recently that once they enabled the like feature on comments, it kind of destroyed all 
you know, good conversation on social media because people, instead of responding from a point of actually trying to converse, started responding to how many likes can I get on this comment. And so I have a theory that most of the time when people do that on comments, I mean, it's not a theory, it's a fact. They're not even saying what they truly believe. They're just saying what they know is going to get them attention because they're hoping it's going to cause someone to come to them page and now they're going to follow you or they're going to come to your page and they're going to start liking your photos. They're just trying to get attention. And that's what a lot of social media has become. It's just a race for attention um, as opposed to a means of conversation. And it's just a colossal waste of time. And I think that's been the biggest change for me with social media this year. I was like, I've got one mission statement, leave people better when they find me. Um, so whenever I'm, you know, whenever I'm getting a negative comment, whenever I'm getting any troll or hater, my response is, be, is the same. What am I going to say now to leave that person better? And that, once again, saves me a lot of time because it's just, even though it's the most negative of responses, it's the most positive of response to myself. And there's only two things that tend to happen. I get an apology or I don't get any response whatsoever. Both of them are positive because one actually gets an apology from that individual. And the second one means that I haven't got to do anything. So I can go back to doing shit that I should be doing, which is actually going and enjoying myself with people I give a fuck about. Yeah. I mean, my mission statement on social media is don't fucking lie. Um, I made it a point to myself to never express something on social media that I didn't believe to be true and to also never front with this lifestyle or something that actually isn't real. Um, so everything I try to post on social media, it's either something I, I believe or it's the reality of what's fucking happening in my life at the time. And I wish more people would do that because, you know, like we talked about before this as a writer, and as any kind of artist or creator, if you don't feel true to yourself or you don't believe in what you're doing, it's incredibly fucking painful. And I couldn't imagine trying to always say the right thing or try to write what is going to be perceived as the correct public opinion because that wouldn't be authentic to me and it would just make all of it fucking suck. Yeah, 100%. There is one of your 35 at 35 I disagree with, though, Carl. And it's this one. I'm too I already old know which one it is. I'm too old for TikTok. <laughs> uh, I, actually thought, I actually thought it was going to be the hippos one. I was wrong. Oh, the hippos one. Hippo, is it hippos are fucking... Hippos are scary or, or hippos... Hippos are, the... hippos are fucking dicks. <laughs> yeah, they are. If you ever watch a video of a hippo, those creatures are fucking brutal. Um, the TikTok hippo, one... Yeah. The TikTok um, one. I'm I'm too old for TikTok. Carl, I'm, I'm 37, and I started on TikTok two years ago at 35. The first time I came on the app, I was like, what the fuck is this? And one of the reasons being is that when you first go on the app, TikTok doesn't know what to show you, so it shows you the most popular stuff. And if you've ever looked at what goes viral these days with short-form video, there's no wonder not many people adopt TikTok. But as soon as you let the algorithm know the, the shit that you like and the shit you don't like, it's incredible. Um, it, it is, weirdly enough, TikTok is now my biggest platform. It's, all, you know, it's, it's almost 900,000 followers. And I'm just putting the same shit out that I do with Instagram Reels. It, and it's really connected with a, a new audience of younger people, sort of 16 to 20. 
who actually need that kind of information that you know that I share and most probably you share on that platform um, and it is such a you've already got all the content there it's a case of then just putting it either into video format or just putting a fancy little video uh, image behind it and then just putting your tweets onto it so this is one of those things where I'm absolutely okay with being wrong because in the year since I wrote that, I have had a bit of a change of heart in the sense that I have started to think on it for the same way you have. Uh, the younger audience needs to hear the kind of messaging I have more than ever. And I've had my name parked on TikTok since the app was created. I just didn't want anyone else to steal my handle. Um, I have yet to make the dive, but I definitely am open to it for the exact same reasons you're saying. I just want to make sure... My point is trying to avoid further things to distract me. Um, I want to make sure that if I'm doing it, I'm doing it in a way that manages my time correctly. I don't want to get sucked down another hole of social media. Um, but I do anticipate in the future with some of the things I have coming up project-wise that I will start using that platform. Yeah, and I don't. to be honest, I don't blame anyone. When you first go on it, it's just... and it It's can awful. Be a... <laughs> And it, and it can be a time waster, but I've also met some incredible people on there, you know, who are yeah. doing some really good work. So there is, there is little diamonds in the rough in there. And that's one of the again, things I was another distraction. I was going to say, and that's one of the things I really enjoy about social media is meeting people. Um, like we talked about it connected us, but man, I can't even tell you how many of my good friends now I have because of Instagram. Um, as we get older in life, it's fairly common that we kind of filter our friends out and you start connecting with more like-minded individuals. And with how much I've moved and traveled, I've never really had like a hometown for long. I don't have a lot of like the same friend group. Majority of my friends that are people I talk with on a daily basis are people I met through Instagram or events because we were there for the same reason with the same mindset. And I'm completely open and hopeful that the same thing would happen if I branch out on TikTok. Yeah, 100%. And, and that's one of the good things. I mean, the algorithm's better because it shows you more of the stuff that you like. And if you force it and say, I don't like this, I don't like this, it doesn't show you that shit. Mm. So my feed, well, sometimes I realize when I'm watching shit because suddenly you're like, why is my news feed full of shit? And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm telling the algorithm that I want to see this kind of shit. So then I have to go on this real hard mission to tell it that I do not want to see this stuff even though it's very addictive, like they've got some fucked up stuff there where um, you can you can upload up to 10 minutes, but they have things like police chases, but they're like six parts. So as with any police chase, you get about 30 seconds into it and then you're like, where's part two? And you're like, stop. You just want to see the end. <laughs> you just want to see the end. But then you've got to go on their profile and then scroll down and try and find that part. And I'm just like, Jay, you've spent too much time on this app. Get the fuck off. Kyle's actually right. <laughs> that's uh that's a good metaphor for life, what you're just describing, how what you start giving attention to, you start attracting more on the app, essentially Instagram or you know, TikTok, the algorithm learns that's what you're spending time on. I think it's so true in life. Um especially when it comes to drama and gossip and shit that people get themselves broke into, the more attention you give that stuff, you realize there's a lot more of it that starts coming into your life. And I think if all of us kind of treated our life almost more like an algorithm, not to say we should make it more, more techie, because I think it's already gone too far that way. Um, 
whatever you put your attention into, you need to anticipate that coming back to you. And it helps you be a lot more selective with your energy. And like we said, with that whole sunk cost fallacy um, perspective. Yeah. And I think um, the, the uh, wise philosopher Ice-T once said, you've got to check yourself before you wreck yourself. And it's something I've got very good at doing when I just end up down this content hole of, of crap where I'll just go, hang on a minute. You know, he just, just had a memoir. Yeah, he just had a memoir come out that's supposed to be pretty good. I want to pick that up and check it out because, like you said, he is a very, uh, very philosophical gangster. <laughs> so, Carl, I want to kind of rewind a bit deeper into the past. Um, you grew up as a Mormon, if I'm correct. I did. I grew up LDS in good old Utah. Could you tell us a little bit about? A little bit more about that and how you think it kind of helped or even hindered what you do today. As with all things in life, I think they have the opportunity to both help or hinder you. It kind of depends on how you look at them. Um, So growing up LDS, as a kid, it was awesome because I always had a very tight knit friend group because we're all kind of in the same church ward. Everyone as far as the neighborhood knows each other. So as a kid, it's, it's great. Um, and then I got a little bit older and started to kind of question it. And I realized that there might be that one house on my block um, that belongs to a family that isn't a member of the church. And I always had this kind of weird mindset that they were outsiders. Um, and I got old enough to realize that it was because I was raised in the religion and it, it started to bother me. And I felt like I was being restricted in my life as far as who I knew or my experiences by the church and about the age of like 15 or 16, when a lot of people start kind of questioning what they're doing with their life is when I had a full, you know, 180 perspective on it. I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, I wanted to go out and, you know, get drunk with my friends and steal cigars out of their, you know, dad's closet kind of thing. And my parents weren't too happy with it, but my dad was always very supportive in the idea that I was still his son and he still wanted me in the house and still wanted what's best for me. And so I'd say by the time I was, you know, 17, maybe I was completely out of it. I was doing my own thing. And it caused me to go down a path of complete rebellion. And I wanted absolutely nothing to do with any kind of religion. I wanted absolutely nothing to do with any God talk. And I think for a while it hurt me in the sense that I was living my life out of rebellion Um, Whether I was trying to make up for lost time or I was trying just to prove to myself that I didn't need any kind of basis of belief in my life to feel good. And I eventually got to a point where just most recently I opened myself up to the idea of something bigger than myself and something connecting us in a way that I couldn't explain. I still don't agree with a lot of organized religion. Um, if people, you know, want it in their life, that's cool. That helps you get by and helps you, you know, deal with the pain that is life. I'm more than supportive of it, but it's not for me. And I'd say the primary takeaway in a way that growing up in that religion helped me is it has allowed me to understand in a very empathetic way how people's beliefs start to become a reality for them. And So when I am arguing with someone or I do talk with someone I disagree with, I don't come at it in a very combative way because I know what it's like to hear the same thing over and over and over again and have it become like something that you believe without a doubt is true. And we've seen that recently on media the past two years when you're hit the same message over and over, you start to believe it. And so I'm grateful 
in the sense that I grew up that way because it does give me, especially as a writer, a good understanding of human psychology. Um, as far as it, it hurt me, I'd say growing up in a religion that conservative, it taught me a lot of suppression. I don't know if it was intentional, but it forced me to suppress a lot. I didn't talk much growing up when I was dealing with things in life, you know, when I was going through things that were painful or things that were confusing, I didn't talk about it. I learned to bottle all up because if I did talk about it, the response was typically read this scripture or go talk to your bishop about it. It was always a religious solution to a very human problem. And it drove me fucking crazy. And it made me feel misunderstood. And that probably contributed to a lot of my depression and emotional you know bottling later in life when it came to being in relationships and when it came to preparing to be a dad um i had to really unpack my childhood and realize that i needed to learn to talk about things and that people would understand me and that i wasn't alone in feeling what i was feeling and so that's probably the biggest takeaway as far as it hurt me but again i i at this point in my life i believe it's a positive because it's given me a lot of empathy yeah and i, I think as well Religion has, in its way, certain aspects. There's a guy that really sorted my shit out when it came to relationships. His name is Alain de Baton. And he has a book, uh, Religion for Atheists. And it's, it's fascinating because what he's talking about is not, not necessarily the, the fiction of religion, if that makes any sense. It's more the fundamentals behind it and understanding the feelings of like faith, hope, um, mm -hmm. certain, certainty. And some of these things that, of course, religion really attaches onto, which is why you understand, you know, why so many people, you know, are, you know, incredibly religious, because you have those certain things in there. But then at the same time, there are things that are missing, because as you just said, you know, if you're feeling a certain way, it's like, oh, that's okay, someone's written a scripture on that, it's like, oh, cheers. You know, that's not yeah. really identifying the emotion in which you're experiencing or the thing that you're experiencing. I think religion works because probably the one thing that humans fear more than anything is uncertainty. And we don't like not having the answers. And it's very hard to go through life or to go through relationship, to go through a career if you don't have an end goal or uh kind of what you see the purpose of that being. And so religion gives people purpose in their life. It allows them to accept the things that are hard. So when something devastating happens in your family, it's easy to say, okay, this is part of God's plan. And so I understand religion in the sense that it helps people cope with stuff like that. But I do believe there's a largely predatory nature to organized religion. And I hate seeing people that are good-hearted people taken advantage of by people in positions of power and i think it happens in religion very often because it is such a deeply held belief system when someone you know grows up in a religious sect for example yeah 100 100 i want to kind of fast forward a bit now uh kyle actually something i googled with uh, with mormon is that they're against alcohol, tobacco, tea, coffee, drugs, and profanities. And I was like, well, that's me fucked, basically. Terrible, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you did a post, Carl, um, I think it was July, July the 30th, 2019. And just one of the paraphrases that really hit me was, don't ignore the pain in your own mind. 
you took a month off from social media and, and the reason it resonates with me is that I had a I I had a massive meltdown in 2016 um and it was kind of fucked up because it was the most successful year I've ever had. I ticked every single box that I'd ever wanted to achieve up until that point in life. And then it got to December and it made me fucking miserable, so much so that I split from my wife, moved out, and went in a really bad, you know, dark space for quite a few months. And it took me, a, you know, it took me into a hole that I'd never been in before, which took me a long time to come out. So I just wanted to learn a bit more about your experience with firstly having that month off from social media um and then secondly you know what you're experiencing and going through that time i think what you just said is also very similar to my story and a lot of others in the sense that it's often high achievers who hit these roadblocks in their life and become incredibly depressed and a lot of it comes from this belief that when you finally attain something you're going to be happy and then you attain it and you're like, what the fuck? What now? And you're left with nothing. And I had to talk with my buddy, Andy Frisella about this. It's often worse to achieve your, your wildest dreams if you're not ready for it because it leaves you feeling incredibly empty. And so what had happened to me in that year is I'd left my advertising career. I'd moved to LA and my career prior to that, I was very busy. I was on the road all the time. Um, I was a consultant for bars and hotels. And so a lot of my career was just out socializing, um, doing research, as they would say. And I moved to LA and I had this real slowdown. Um, I was focusing on my own writing and I just started to feel really irrelevant um, in my own life and in the lives of other people because I wasn't being reached out to. I wasn't you know, being needed all the time. And it was just slow burn over about six months. And I ended up getting a book deal with a large publisher. It was the first major book deal I'd had. And there's a lot of money attached to it. And I was in a funk so badly that it didn't even phase me. I got the book deal and I just immediately went back to whatever shit hole I had dug for myself and negative thinking. And that was when I started to realize I was in a pretty bad headspace. And I had been distracting myself for years with the idea that when I finally got a book deal, life was going to be good. Uh, I'd finally be recognized as a real writer and I'd finally take myself seriously. Um, and there's still to this day, I still refer to myself as a writer. I don't refer to myself as an author because I, I'm very hard on myself. I don't think you can call yourself an author until you've written a novel, which I have not done yet. So I have all these weird little eccentricities like that in my life and these pressures I put on myself and it just all hit a boiling point. And I realized I needed to get offline. I needed to do everything the opposite of what I was doing. And so I left LA and I moved back to Utah for a bit. And I avoided social media. I went stone cold sober. I just did a lot of reading. I saw a therapist for the first time in my life. You know, prior to that, I was afraid that therapy was just going to steal all the good jokes from me um, because I needed. Uh, you know, like many artists or creators, I believed I needed those negative experiences and emotions to truly create good art, which I think is a false belief we have around um, a lot of creativity. And I did the exact opposite. And that's what we were talking about, you know, before this podcast, when I decided that when I came back online, I was going to be very honest. I was going to be very straightforward about what I was going through. And in that time that I was off, I had received, you know, thousands of DMs from people. And when I got back on, I started kind of catching up on them. 
And a lot of them were from young men or, you know, men around my same age who looked up to me and saw my lifestyle and thought that I was living the life. And I can't even tell you how many messages I received that talked about also wanting to end their life or also being resistant to therapy or feeling incredibly lost. And because I was willing to talk about it, they were willing to now talk about it and they were willing to seek help and they were willing to let their wife or girlfriend know they were actually in a very bad headspace. And that's what that post was getting at. You know, don't ignore the pain in your own mind. Um, and that could also go back to the, the first thing we talked about, you know, resisting change is prolonging that pain. And if you're resistant to seeking help, you're going to feel terrible for much longer than necessary. And you can attest this. I can attest to this. Individuals much more successful than you or I can also attest to it. Um, no one is immune to depression. No one is immune to stress and anxiety. It's how we learn to cope with it. Um, some people cope with it through religion. Some people cope with it with drugs or alcohol, which I did for many years. It kept me feeling distracted and busy. But it wasn't until I forced myself to really sit with myself that I understood what my motivations in life really were. And I posted something recently on a reel on Instagram where I said, you know, the ultimate goal in life should be finding purpose, not financial, because finances come and go and you can have all the finances in the world. And without purpose, that's when you have those moments of why the fuck am I here? And that's why when it comes to setting goals in your life, I always urge people to set a goal that's purposeful and that actually really can't be attained. And so, like you said, your goal is to always leave people better than you found them. There's never going to be a point in your life where you're going to be like, okay, I've done it. I've met every fucking person and I've made them all better. Um, that goal is something you can do every minute of every day for the rest of your life. It'll never be accomplished. But as you're pursuing that, you will achieve financial success. You will achieve you know, spiritual success. You will achieve you know, relationship growth. All of that stuff that people put as the end all is just a part of your overarching view of life. A hundred percent. There was a couple of quotes that you said um, when you came back that that probably like punched my soul, shall we say. Um, the first one is, I had successfully convinced myself that my personal misery was necessary for my creativity. Yeah, that's what I just talked about. And yeah, I heard someone... Uh, I was listening to a podcast recently and they were talking about people like Jimi Hendrix, Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, these tortured artists. And as a society, we love to romanticize this idea of the tortured artist or the drug addicted writer, you know, Bukowski, you know, the alcoholic that wrote at his keyboard until he passed out at night. And I get it because the vast majority of people will never understand what it's like to create for a living. And it's alluring to them to believe that, oh, I could do this too, but the reason I can't do it is because I don't have a drug addiction or I don't have a, I don't live this crazy lifestyle. And so I think part of it almost takes the credit away from the individual and you start convincing yourself that the only reason they're successful or the only reason they're creative is because they're fucked up. And a lot of creators want to believe that about themselves too because it makes it easier to accept the fact that creativity often comes from nowhere 
Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Stephen Pressfield, but he talks about, you know, the muse and the muse just comes into your life. And people don't like to hear that word because it sounds very religious. But um, he says that all great writers and Stephen King even says this, they don't know where their creativity comes from. It just happens. And so I think it's easy to explain the creativity away in the sense of negativity or drug abuse or, you know, a toxic lifestyle. And it makes it easy to justify it because it's it's fun. Yeah, it's it's enjoyable going out and getting fucked up and doing dumb stuff. It is in the moment. Um, and then when you're alone with yourself, you might write something witty or funny about it. And now you're like, okay, see, I need that. Because if I hadn't done that last night, I wouldn't thought of this. And it's this toxic cycle. And I can't think of anything more depressing than to believe that your purpose as a creator is to fuck your life up and die in your 20s. And a lot of younger people have that problem. Uh, they have that false belief. And it's one of the things that I've tried to kind of negate in my own life. Um, yeah, there's been plenty of great stuff I've written when I've been drunk. Um, there still are times when, you know, I, I want to get out and I want to experience a little bit of the, the rough side of life because it helps me kind of have a perspective on things. But I don't believe that that misery created by it is necessary for me anymore. It's just something that I either seek because I do enjoy novel experiences or it's just like everyone else. I just like to kind of blow off some steam sometimes. Yeah. And it, it took me many years to realize my own one. Um, I was in the British army for seven years. So I became, that's a basically like being a Mormon. Yeah, it's pretty much. Yeah, especially on operational tour where you were literally restricted with doing with doing everything. But I, I think one of the realizations from that was realizing that sometimes I only really do my best work when shit hits the fan, and sometimes mm. you have to create those shit hit the fan um, environments, and that's normally by self sabotage. So. You know, sometimes when I had a big speaking event, I go get absolutely wasted the night before um, because it's so much more difficult to do the next day. And the worst thing that can happen is to then get positive feedback when you're in a negative state of mind because mm -hmm. it kind of solidifies that that was the right thing to do. So the next yes. time you go and do something, you kind of want to go and fuck yourself up a bit because it worked last time. And it's very similar thought pattern with a lot of people when they've let's just say an artist has created a multi-platinum selling album but they were addicted to drugs now they're suddenly reminded that the only way that they're going to produce that next best work is if they get even more fucked up yeah i'm not i'm not saying that it isn't possible and that there are obviously times when you know drug and alcohol use does give you an altered perspective that actually transits into creativity it's the belief that it's the only way that is incredibly fucking detrimental to society. Because um, like you said, a lot of it isn't, it's like you didn't give a good speech because you got fucked the night before. You just happened to get away with it. It's similar to, you know, DUI. Just because you've driven drunk a dozen times before doesn't mean it's going to work for you the 13th time. And there probably will be one of those moments where your drug or alcohol abuse will negatively fuck up your life. And it could be in a way that completely negates everything you've done up to that point. You completely derail your career. I mean, how many celebrities have you seen that are at the height of their fame that they just disappear and you wonder what happened to them? And then you hear them, you know, 10, 15 years later, giving an interview on TV talking about how their drug and alcohol abuse just destroyed everything that was good in their life. And it eventually got to the point that they couldn't work anymore. They couldn't function. No one wanted to work with them. 
and they ended up destroying their career. I, I'd be interested to see the Will Smith interview in 10 years' time, if that ever yeah. happens. Yeah, I, it'll, it'll happen eventually. At some point, someone will pay enough money or there'll be uh, some kind of motive behind telling the real story. Yeah, and a lot of people used to ask, a lot of people ask me about that and they say what are your thoughts i thought it's mate i thought it's brilliant and not not for him um but just to, that someone so that everyone regards as you know that high can you know fuck up that much and you know if any you know, that should make you feel you know in, in yourself it's not exactly you know pointing the finger and going oh you know thank God something's happened to that individual. It's the fact that it can happen to anybody, any, you know, we're human at the end of the day. Yeah. I think the way to look at it as is no matter your height of fame, there's internal pain in all of us. And I think what you saw happen, either it was a brilliant marketing ploy to get us talking about the Oscars, or it was years of deeply rooted emotional pain that you saw come out in an instant. And it, it is a good example when you want to look at it that way. The fact that no matter how, you know, he seems like the most positive, fun, loving guy on Instagram, on all his interviews, there, there can always be that darkness or that pain in anybody. Yeah, it was, it was strange for us because about two months before he had a one-off um, interview on his book in London, there was only about 300 people in the audience and I managed to, get tickets and he you know it was it was an amazing interview he did it with Idris Elba and uh it was very fascinating because he spoke a lot about different things in his life but it was just stuff in the book and he but he didn't speak once about his um his personal relationships and I found that Mm. super fascinating that he could go for two hours talking about the depths of everything that he did bringing up to where he is today but not once talking about his his actual you know relationships which is so does he not talk about it at all in the book either nope doesn't talk my about his, his wife his relationship with that not nope not really my guess would be either he believes he's doing it from a, a place of nobility like he's protecting people or it's something that i think this probably could be the case it's something that's currently an issue and we don't like to talk about things we're currently dealing with most of the time. It's easy to talk about things two years after you've sorted them out. But if it's something you're currently in the mud with, it's not comfortable to talk about. And so the fact he doesn't talk about it at all would lead me to believe he's in the mud with it. And then what happened you know, at the Oscars could almost be testament that that's the case. Scabs versus scars. It's easier. Absolutely. Easier for us, easier for us to talk about scars. You know, during that 2016 period, I didn't want, I didn't, no one knew about it. And, and I wrote a book in 2019 on that experience. And that mm. is me talking about the scars, but there's no way that I could have spoken a word about it uh, during that 2017 period of recovery. It's too hard. It's too emotionally, uh, your emotions are too heightened to even make sense of it too. Even if you would have written a book, it probably would have been shit because you wouldn't have been in a headspace to articulate in a way that, you know, makes sense. You would just been rambling your pain in the moment. Um, but I was going to ask you, you know, similar to my experience, aren't you fucking glad you went through that though? Like today, don't you feel like you're a better person because of it? 
100%. Every, everything good in my life has come from something really bad, which, which felt at the time the worst thing that could ever happen to me. You know, I, I, I'm where I am today because I got made redundant from my job that I didn't particularly like doing, and it was forced into following my passion, which then kick-started my entire career. That enabled me to sort my shit out, really value my time, move from work you know I, I used to do 14 16 hour days you know i was that person that would be on the internet saying if you just sleep two hours less a day you get a whole month of of, of shit to get done for the year and it was just this realization that everything that i was doing hustling working not sleep you know all this was bollocks was utter shit because I just convinced myself that that is what's required to become successful. Sacrificing relationships, family, time, you know, for work in order to be this thing that you don't even know who the fuck is. And yeah, it, fuck it that. Tri- I like I like sleep too much. Fuck that shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I've I've also noticed, and you probably have too, that. I'm more creative and I'm a better writer when my life is real well-rounded. Um, if I just put my nose to the grindstone and feel like I'm going to write all day, every day, my work sucks because I'm not having enough experiences to actually draw conclusions from. Like I need time with my friends. I need to travel. I need to spend time with my son. I need to hang out with my girlfriend. I need to have all the experiences so that when I do take that four hour period in the day to really write, I have stuff to draw from. And it could be different in a certain business perspective where your job doesn't rely so heavily on creativity. It's strictly like time management. But um, I have a buddy who's, who's very successful and he owns far more companies than, than I could even name. But even he told me that one of the most important things to his success is taking the weekends off to, with his family. I think he has five or six kids and he takes the weekends off and he spends a lot of time with his boys. And he said, by Sunday night, I'm ready to get back to work and I'm refreshed. And then he said, by the end of the week, I'm ready to see my kids. And it's that balance back and forth that has made him so successful because then when he does work, he's very motivated. He has the energy to do it. He has the clear head to make decisions correctly. And that balancing act is, is crucial to not only a life that's, enjoyable but also success as a whole yeah 100 percent. i mean i work four days a week now i i take a spa day on a thursday so tomorrow is spa day where i just go up to spa i've got a, a notepad pen no tech and i do some of my i extract everything like all my videos this year that have just come from that notepad because i've awesome. got that I've just got that one day away. And the first day I did it, I felt guilty as fuck. I was like, my kids are at home. My wife's at home. I'm sitting in a spa in a jacuzzi. I, I, and, I, and then I came back to work the next day and I was just, everything was through the roof. And then I just said to myself, yeah, that was a one-off because I was getting a bit burnt out. And I was like, could you imagine if you did this every single week? And I was like, let's do it. <laughs> and, you know, that, it's been fantastic. And same again, weekends for me are family time. You know, and I tell people proudly on, on social media that I, you know, I have my Thursday spa day, I have my weekends off. And I remember this quote, I think I had it in one of my 36 things at 36. And it was, if you can't build a successful business in five days, working seven won't help. And that was just hit me to the core with stuff. It's just like, hmm, that, you know, for me, that perfectly makes sense because that stress plus rest equals growth. 
And it's the same with building your body as it is building your brain. You need to take, it's that time that you're not in the gym that actually tear, you know, repairs and grows the muscle, but it's the time when you're not in work that that's when you replenish that creativity, energy, and that want to go back to work and, and put some effort in. I love that because I do something similar. I haven't been good at it recently because I've been traveling a lot on the weekends, but Sundays, I like to put my phone away Saturday night and then Sunday, I don't want to be on it at all. I don't want to use it for anything. I'll go to the gym with no headphones. I'll go on a run with no podcast in my ears. Um, I won't use GPS to get around if I have to go run errands. And just having that day completely away from technology has made me a better writer because I've learned to be more descriptive with things. Like if, if I'm on a run and I see something cool and I want to tell someone about it, I have to learn how to articulate that as opposed to just pulling out my phone and taking a photo of it like I would if, if I had it on me. And so that break, I think, has been really beneficial to allowing me to maintain the pace I have recently because I am working on several projects. I'm probably you know busier than I've ever been, to be honest. Plus, I, I recently became a dad. I have a son that's a little over a year old. And so I'm juggling a lot on, on my plate. But that one day off, similar to your spa day with no technology, is so necessary for me to not only feel like I'm not burning out, but to feel like I, I, have, I have time to myself, which feels selfish at first because you think, oh, what if someone needs to get a hold of me? But it comes down to that, you know, the, the whole airplane metaphor where people say you got to put your mask on before you help others. Um, it's, it's true in life. If you don't manage your own stress and take care of yourself in ways that work for you, don't expect to show up for the people. It's just not going to fucking happen. Yeah. And, and it reminds me that my, a lot of my work this year is to help people get better. And I can't produce that work if I'm not better myself. So I need to fill up my vessel before I can even consider thinking of helping other people with theirs. Yeah, you would end up being just a part of that hypocritical bullshit social media, um, which a lot of people are. I mean, I think, uh, you know, if you weren't to take care of yourself and then tell other people how to do it themselves, you fall into the same category as uh, an influencer posing in front of a Lamborghini they don't fucking own. Um, you're fake and there's nothing worse than trying to maintain a fake persona for a long time. Like that is a recipe for stress and depression and all sorts of just mental, you know, downfall. Yeah. A hundred percent. There's another quote here, Carl. I think this one really hit me. Avoiding acts of genuine love for the sake of maintaining an image of stoic intellectualism is a self-inflicted mental prism. <laughs> Uh, I, I wrote that in regards to my relationship because uh, my girlfriend and I did break up for an extended period of time. Thankfully, we're back together now, and it's who I have a son with. But I had a very hard time doing things that were romantic, and I had a very hard time expressing my appreciation for people prior to kind of my breakdown in 2019 when I realized that not only did I need that in my life, like I like it when people do that, but I had to learn to also give that to others. Um, you know, my, my girlfriend still points out to me that I have a very hard time accepting compliments. When people compliment me, I shrug it off and it's, it's something I don't like to uh, really internalize. I don't know if that's because I don't want to get high on my own supply 
or if it's because it's something that I just still struggle with. But I realized on the flip side that I have a hard time giving compliments out. And so in regards to that quote, it was really the fact that I wanted to maintain this at the time I wanted to maintain this kind of unbreakable demeanor that I was, you know, stronger than I was and that I wasn't feeling, you know, the love I felt for my girlfriend or that I wasn't feeling the vulnerability that I wanted to express, but chose not to. And that was probably one of the things that I think, you know, going back to what we talked about being, you know, LDS, I learned to suppress stuff. And so I suppressed the good emotions too later in life. And that absolutely was a source of my depression because if you can't learn to reciprocate love, you can't accept love. And if you're in that state of mind, how the fuck can you possibly not be depressed? Um, so that's really where that came from was just my own learning experience with learning to give and receive. Yeah. It resonated with me with a lot because it was a, a big issue that I had. And I think they call it intellectualization where I'd have people come to me in a, in a bad emotional state with something and I'd be the most stoic person without, you know, wanting to respond, whereas most people have this kind of mirror neuron where they take on the emotions of that person because that's that's human beings, because that's what yeah. we do. Um, whereas I was very stoic in the fact that I, I didn't know what to do. I was very like, hmm, okay, this person's more like a robot. This person must be experiencing this because of this. I'm not going to obviously, you know, respond. I'm just going to go and read about it, and then I'm going to come back to them and tell them what, problem is which is complete and utter bollocks at the end of this the is just... basically it's a basically the same mindset as religion like god is the answer to everything and on the flip side of that you can think that intellect is the answer to everything that you know no matter what you're going through you can think your way out of it and i fell into that trap too where i considered myself a fairly smart guy and i would do the same thing i would analyze how i was feeling and i would try and think my way out of it and express Oh, it's, it's likely just because this and this and the neurons are doing this. And if I do this and there's dopamine here and like trying, you know, science, you know, create a little uh, equation to make yourself happy. It's just, it doesn't fucking happen. We're too complex and emotions are too, are too deeply rooted. And, um, likewise in your position, you know, given my, my online presence and what I write about, I've had a lot of people come to me over the years, friends, family members looking for advice. And I always tried to do the same thing. I tried to be like this, like straight faced, like I'm going to help you think your way out of this. And it would frustrate people. And I couldn't understand why they were frustrated because uh, I'd be like, uh, listen, I'm giving you great fucking advice. Why are you mad right now? And it comes down to that same thing. They just want to be heard and they want to be related to on a human level. They want another human to empathize with them, allow them to vent and help them feel understood. Yeah, and it's something I realized uh, that I was, you know, 100% exactly what I was doing. And I came up with this little thing. Sometimes one plus one isn't two. Sometimes it's fuck you. And <laughs> and it's and it's just that kind of thing. And the whole point of that is sometimes the, the, the response isn't logical. It's emotional. And mm -hmm. that's absolutely fine. We're, you know, we're not robots. We're not, you know, we're not logical human beings we're, we're emotional creatures and we back it up with logic and yeah that was some deep work that i had to do over many years to realize and, and just get unstuck from that 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 person who i thought that i needed to be and what has helped me with that too most recently is 
thinking of my young son. I don't know how old your kids are, but imagine your your kid coming to you with some real emotional pain and you just try to think your way out of it with them rather than empathize with them. Like that's the kind of stuff that is going to really hinder that child in life because they're not going to learn how to manage their emotions. They're not going to learn that what they're feeling is normal. They're not going to feel understood. And so it's one of those things that a lot of us carry into adulthood. And I'm working on a book now where I'm kind of examining my own childhood and what I've carried with me as an adult that like we talked about earlier has either helped or hindered me. And it's given me such an appreciation for the people in my life who have been able to show up for me in emotional ways when even I was looking for an intelligent response from them. Like I didn't want to feel the emotion, but they knew that that was the right way to handle things. Yeah, I think a lot of mine comes from, you know, my my side of the family. My wife's side of the family is very emotional. Like when you say that they've got new, good news, they're like, ah, you know, they, they express emotion and everything. And you kind of want to go and tell them good news because they respond to that. But you also want to go and tell them bad news because they'll sit with you with your mm-hmm. emotions and that. Whereas my side of the family are just like, oh, like even, you know, we were on my great grandma's, you know, deathbed not a single tear it's just the most stoic and i realized where all of that came from and i remember a quote it said um heal yourself first so your kids don't have to heal from having you as a parent and that for me was was like fuck yeah so everything that i am where i've got today that i need to do the opposite for my you know for my kids my my son's my son arch is two and my daughter's uh eight so you know i've had to really work on that um and yeah i mean they they get all the emotion all the hugs all the kisses everything i think that's something that scares a lot of people out of becoming a parent is knowing it forces them to face their own shit if they're going to do it correctly and so a lot of people say they're never going to have kids and it's fine i get it if you don't want to have kids it's not for everyone but if your rationale for not having kids is because you want to keep perpetuating your own bullshit, that's just fucking sad. Um, having, having a kid is going to kind of force you to get out of that. And it's going to make your life so much more rewarding because you will have realizations and you will work through things you otherwise would just keep ignoring. Brings me perfectly into the next question, Carl. Um, with you being a dad now uh, with Ethan, who's one, how has being a dad changed you when it comes to your work and your mindset? It's softened me up for sure. Um, as you, as you know, you followed me for a while. I used to be very, very confrontational and I was very deliberate in the way I delivered things because I, I almost wanted them to come across harsh because that was the way I talked to myself in my own mind. And I figured that was the way that people needed to hear that advice. And so Having a son, like we just talked about, has has forced me to reevaluate the way I deliver advice because if it were him coming to me, I wouldn't talk to him that way. Um, that would be a completely asshole dad move. And so it's softened me up. It's made me much more empathetic. And honestly, I think it's made me more creative. Um, I got to a point in my life I was single for a long time. I didn't get my first serious relationship till I was 32. So I, I had a very you know long single life and it just got old 
and it got very repetitive and dating kind of became the same game. And I realized that I was losing perspective on things to write about because I wasn't growing myself and being in a relationship now and growing together and learning to deal with things. And then also now adding the child component to it, it's given me new experiences and new perspectives that I wouldn't have accomplished or, or found otherwise. And so a lot of people like to fear that having a child is going to be the end of their career, um, that they're no longer going to have time to pursue the things they want. And I can understand that fear, but I can attest to the fact that it is not the fucking truth if you look at it the right way. And I'm very grateful for the mindset that he has brought into my life. Yeah, I still deliver stuff harsher than I should a lot of the time, but that's kind of just me. I mean, there's certain aspects of my personality that are never going to leave. And there's certain things I'm always going to find funny. And um, that that's not going to go away. But ultimately, like I you know said, it it really softened my, my view on the world. Yes. Yeah, and it couldn't always- have come... I was going to say, and it couldn't, it couldn't have come at a better time because I had him right in the middle of, you know, this whole COVID bullshit. And that was a time when the world needed to be softened. There was so much divisiveness going on that I am so grateful that I was forced to take a mindset that wasn't contributing to that. And I wish more people would soften up too, because the way it's going still to this day with the divisiveness. It is not a pleasant world to be a part of. Yeah. You know, and I think as well, a lot of people, a lot of people say to me about, Oh, you know, they look at the doom and gloom of what's going on in the world and they look at everything like that. And I'm like, well, it's always been like that. It always has. And it comes back to what we were saying is like your, your view of the world is based on what, you give your attention to and if you're mm-hmm. constantly reading newspapers watching cnn uh, scrolling through twitter then you're going to think the world is a horrible place and a, a lot of the time i say to people well no because when i'm going on my news feeds all i see is good shit it's because i've created an environment around looking for good shit around mm-hmm. and and you know this, and this isn't to be naive in what is going on, but it, something that I've got out of my studio is environment dictates performance, and I know a hundred percent. You know, when I don't look at the news. I started looking more at the news when during the COVID times, but I realised that every time I switched it on, I just got felt worse and worse. I was like, well, why the fuck am I going to switch this thing on then? Um, I will just get feedback. Am I allowed out of my house today or am I not? And, and you can find that out from somebody else. Mm-hmm. I'm the same way in the sense I, I've tried to avoid the mainstream news as much as possible. And I try to curate my life in a way that positively affects me. But I, I still think that there has been a dramatic shift in the way people interact. And it's something as simple as going out to the grocery store and talking with a stranger it doesn't feel as open as it used to in the sense that a lot of times people wait to hear your view on something before they really open up. Or I had a guy at the grocery store the other day genuinely thank me for having a conversation with him. Um, He just was so grateful that I talked to him. And I think there's been so much separation created that there is a bit of a change that is undeniable. And as much as we can curate our life or try and, 
you know, avoid playing into the negativity of it. There's still, it's still out there. And so that's where it comes down to men like you and I who have platforms to promote the right messaging to try and at least affect some positive change in the world. And, you know, when I say the world's becoming a, a, a not so pleasant place to be a part of, it doesn't mean I believe it's all melancholy and going to hell. I believe that it's just different than what I remember it being growing up. And I have hope that it, it can change. And like we talked about with religion, you know, one of the primary things religions gives people is hope. And hope is probably one of the most powerful human emotions. You need to have hope that things can be better. You need to have hope that you can change things. You need to have hope that you are, you know, powerful enough to take control of your life. Without that, it everything feels destitute. And so I have hope that it can it can be changed. And I have hope that it can get better if enough people you know choose to do so yeah and and it comes down to that choice i remember one of your posts you were saying that you know you a lot of the things that and this is very similar to some of the negative feedback that i've had where you know you're telling people that they're in control of their own lives you're telling people that they can they do have a choice in what they can and can't do and then some people get very very negative or very defensive when you're telling them you, you mm-hmm. know, that that they have this learned helplessness you know I, I love the analogy i don't know if you've heard it of the elephant on the rope with the uh uh the elephant a guy goes on holiday sees this elephant uh, it's a giant elephant with a tiny rope uh, attached to the ground he could pretty much break free from it but he asks his owner why he doesn't he says well we chain them up when they're younger they spend months trying to get out of it and then they just give up and for the rest of their life they don't even try and that i say to people all the time i'm like you're just that giant elephant on this tiny rope that's too shit scared to break free because you weren't able to do it at some point in your life maybe two three four years ago and some people just resist with that i think it comes down to this whole victim culture that's gotten very perpetuated with social media um, where you can post something online talking about a rough time you're going through. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't, you know, share, but a lot of people will like and relate to that behavior and they'll give you attention. And it perpetuates the idea that being a victim is the, the way to get attention and the way to navigate life. And so more people than ever have chosen that position and to hear that you are in control of changing things, it's frustrating because it forces you to accept your own fault. It forces you to accept you've done things that were wrong. And a lot of people aren't comfortable with that at first. It's a very difficult, you know, it's Plato's allegory of the cave where it's hard to come out of the cave and see this world when you've become so comfortable in the one you've confined yourself in. And Again, this kind of goes back to that sunk cost fallacy. People don't want to believe they've wasted the last four years, they've wasted the last seven years of their life in a mindset that ultimately has hindered them. And so it's very hard to break free of that. Um, and so when I do have these empowering messages and I get you know, a lot of blowback on them, it comes down to me understanding that these people weren't raised the same way I was. They haven't had the same experiences I've had. You know, trying to explain a concept to someone who's never, it's like trying to explain, you know, a, a mountain to someone who's never left the desert their whole life. They don't know 
what that looks like. They don't know what snow feels like. They don't know what a pine tree is. And so you have to understand that they haven't been where you've been. And so they can't see things and they can't articulate things the way you have. And it's that kind of understanding we need to have more of for each other. Um, so I, I do speak out fairly heavily on the victim culture because I think it's probably one of the most detrimental things going on right now. But at the same time, I'm not doing it in a way to shame people. I don't want people to feel like a fucking idiot. I want people to feel like they can take control of shit. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I think it's very similar in, in uh, here in the UK as well. You know, it comes on to, have you ever read Tony Robbins' Six Emotional Needs? One of them is love and connection and significance. And, and it, it falls on a kind of a scale and when people start to get significance based on negative behavior such as i'm putting you know i'm a victim poor me and then they get this this like and this significance from that it perpetuates Mm -hmm. it into going oh i'm getting significance from being in a bad place so i'm just going to be that person who's in a bad place Uh, and i see it with a lot of youtubers who i've seen quite a few youtubers who have built up a million subscribers by calling people out for the for for things so gossip and everything else like that and they are literally getting significance from a negative thing and you'll see these people you know actually get paid so you know thousands of dollars in ad revenue from a negative behavior and the amount of these accounts i've seen who have suddenly just stopped because they're like i i you know they've completely cancelled their account or they've stopped posting content because after a year of doing that, they just couldn't deal with it anymore. I like to see that though. I like to see them actually um, understand the negative effects of it because the way I've always looked at that kind of stuff, um, specifically with, you know, celebrity gossip, if that was your life, would you want people peering into it? Would you want people judging it that way? Would you want people making reaction videos on YouTube about your relationship? Fuck no, you wouldn't. So don't feed that behavior and make it. This this is what I've always had, you know, a problem with these, uh, you know, like these celebrity gossip bloggers, these websites that have made their primary focus on taking a photo of a celebrity looking shitty on the beach or promoting who's divorcing who. Like what a fucking pathetic existence that is to make your living off the backs of other people's pain. Um, I can't understand it. I've never had a, a desire to feed into it. And I like seeing these YouTubers. I, I think I know some of them you might be talking about. I like seeing them finally come to terms with the fact that it's wrong or whether they're taking a break, but it shows people that that's just not the way to go about life. A hundred percent. And, you know, a lot of these YouTubers, I, I sometimes forget how old I am because <laughs> these are in their 20s. And I'm like, you, you know, when I was in my 20s, we we didn't even, you know, Facebook was just kicking off. And I'm and mm-hmm. I'm so I am so glad that I had my teenage years without social media. Oh, That's my God. I was talking to yeah. someone about this the other day. Like, could you imagine being in high school right now with social media? High school was already hard enough. I don't know how these kids are doing it because say you do something embarrassing at school or you get in a fight and someone kicks your ass, like that's going to be on YouTube the next day. And 
you, it's just I, I couldn't imagine that scale of public shaming and embarrassment at an age when you are so susceptible to influence. And it's also an age when you are so confused. You are finding out who you are. You are learning what works for you. You are trying to identify which friends are right for you. It just seems like such a god awful childhood compared to the way you and I grew up. And 20 years later, all of that potentially can come back to haunt you. And, mm-hmm. and I think this is what a lot of celebrities are finding, that they're having to apologize for, for something that they said or did 10, 15 years ago. And, and it's, just, it's just crazy. They shouldn't have <laughs> to apologize. That's another one of the problems is I think when we, when we require people to apologize, we forget the fact we're all human. Um, you could dig into anybody's life and find something they did that was fucking stupid or wrong. Um, if you want to apologize and you feel the desire to, by all means, do it. There's nothing wrong with apologizing. Apologizing is probably one of the most badass things you can do when you genuinely believe you're wrong. Uh, but requiring people and this whole narrative from society that people have to be punished for human mistakes that we all make or have all said or likely have done something similar, it's not helpful to this human connection that we we all share yeah a hundred percent carl how many books have you written now seven is that is that correct i've written seven one of them was kind of a repackaging of my fucking history series and then speech therapy was my most recent book and then i have a series of quote books um so seven total well actually i've technically written nine there's two that are unreleased. Um, I have a series of children's books that I'm working on right now with my father as the illustrator. Um, so that's been a really cool project to do together. But yeah, there's seven that are available. And then I I will keep going for as long as my fingers allow me to. So my final question for you, Carl, is of those seven books, you have to give one of them to your 20-year-old self. Which one are you going to give to him? Oh, without a doubt, speech therapy. Um, speech therapy is a book that I wish I had younger in life. Um, it's a book I wish I had three, four years ago. Um, it's basically kind of a culmination of the way I have learned to manage emotions or the way I've learned to shift my mindset in a variety of situations that we all, we're all going to deal with, whether we get broken up with, uh, we miss out on a promotion at, at work, we lose our keys, like these small things to these large things that completely derail us. And it's that emotional management to understand that it happens. Here's how you get through it. Here's how you work through it. Um, If I could have had that knowledge at 20, I would be like some fucking crazy successful writer at this point, because my knowledge at such a young age would have been so far ahead of my years, I could have done a lot with it. yeah, that book by far, like I, I've had a lot of people write me and tell me they give it to their kids as a graduation gift. Um, they give it to their teenagers. And I've had people send me videos of their, you know, their daughter got broken up with. And they sent me a video of her laughing in her room, reading the chapter about being broken up with and how that helped her. And it's, it's a book that I wanted to write in 2017. And I told the idea to an agent and she told me that it wouldn't sell. So I kind of took a word for it and I shelved it in the back of my mind, but I always wanted to write it and I couldn't have written it in 2017. I couldn't have written it without experiencing what I did in 2019 and without experiencing kind of the depressive state I fell into, 
you know, when, when COVID kind of shut everything down, I needed those moments of sitting with myself to understand my own emotional responses in a way that would make the book, you know, worth someone's time. It's a shame because I've, I've got, uh, I think I've got another fucking history here, actually. Oh, you got one of the old school copies too. That's before it was repackaged. Yeah. So that, you know, your 20 year old self isn't going to learn about how, um, the Greeks got fucked by carbs. That's a shame. I mean, there's still a lot of valid stuff in that book too. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I just feel like speech therapy actually is something people can take with them in their life. Whereas the history books are more or less entertaining. They're, they're meant to be fun. They're meant to be lighthearted. But like we kind of opened this whole thing up with, it's about having an impact and trying to change things. And I feel like speech therapy is a book that can actually help people in their day-to-day life, whereas fucking history is just going to help them laugh and be an escape from the day-to-day. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Uh, Cole, where can people find out more about you and what are you currently focused on for the rest of the year? So Instagram and Twitter, um, the handle SGRSTK, or they can just search the captain. It comes up pretty quickly. Uh, As far as the rest of the year, I actually just wrapped up writing a pilot for a TV series um, based on kind of my historical books. And so I think that will be really fun if that gets picked up. But my primary focus for the rest of the year is going to be finishing what I'm working on now, which is the fatherhood book, but it's more of a memoir of my own life and unpacking my own childhood. And it's probably the most difficult book I've ever written because it's requiring much more vulnerability than anything before. And that's what attracts me to it is because it's hard. I like projects that test me. I don't like doing too much of the same thing. Um, It's why I did the children's books. And so my primary focus is going to be that book and the TV series. And uh, where can people get your books? Are they all on on Amazon, Carl? All on Amazon. Fantastic. Well, Carl, every podcast I finish with the same quote, and it's what you put in your body affects how you look and how you feel. And what you put in your head affects what you think and what you do. And today, you've been filling your heads with me, Jay Alderton, and Kyle Creek. Kyle, thank you ever so much for coming on the Mindset Muscle podcast today. Absolutely. Let's do this again. None of you people can tell me to stop. My town, my crown. We know what it takes to be reaching the top. We're reaching the top. We're reaching the top. We know what it takes to be reaching the top.